0: Hello, and welcome again to the Everyday Evidence podcast from AOTA. My name is Bill Jaynes. I am Assistant Research Professor in Occupational Therapy at the University of Missouri and your host. Our guest today is Dr. Timothy Wolf. Tim is Chair of the Department of Occupational Therapy at the University of Missouri. He is also Director of the Performance, Participation, and Neurorehabilitation Lab at the University of Missouri and is currently an Associate Editor of OTJR. In addition to being a longtime friend and colleague, Tim also has the esteemed honor of being my boss. Uh, Tim earned his OTD and PhD both from Washington University in St. Louis. His research focuses on functional cognitive impairments after neurological injury and how self-management education and cognitive strategy training can help improve health and participation outcomes. Tim, thank you for joining us today.
1: Always happy to hang out,
0: Bill. (laughs) So uh, Tim was one of the original certified trainers in the Cognitive Orientation to Daily Occupational Performance Approach, or co-op, and that work is the focus of our conversation today. Along with Helen Politeko, Carolyn Baum, George Rios, Diane Saron, Megan Doherty, and Sarah McEwen, Tim was first author on the 2016 paper titled... Combined Cognitive Strategy and Task-Specific Training Affects Cognition and Upper Extremity Function in Subacute Stroke, an Exploratory Randomized Controlled Trial. It's a mouthful, uh, and you can find that paper in the January 2016 issue of the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, or AJOT, that's in volume 70. So Tim, I know this is work that you uh, had been doing for a while and have continued on uh, and evolved even beyond that trial. By the time you all did this trial, co-op was already uh, an emerging approach in chronic stroke rehab. Now, as far as I know, the larger trial that generated that paper was really the first time that co-op had been systematically implemented in the subacute phase after stroke. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about co-op and what led you to shift your focus to that earlier uh, subacute phase?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. With almost all stroke rehabilitation trials and interventions that we evaluate, the goal is typically to do them as early as possible, right? Uh, During that kind of recovery phase from stroke, where we think that we get the most maximum returns in terms of return to prior level of function. However, when you're doing an early stage clinical trial and you don't have a large enough sample really to control for the huge amount of variance you see in kind of natural recovery from stroke right? What you see most of the time in order to get around this is most early stage interventions are tested first in a chronic sort population once they're kind of out past that six month mark and you don't expect to see a, a lot of natural recovery. And so then once you are able to establish that your intervention does have an effect, at that time point, you can then shift back and look at it at earlier phases of stroke if you have, you know, the theoretical and mechanistic uh, understanding that you believe that it will have an effect at that time. So that's why we end up shifting it back into looking at it in subacute stroke.
0: So I wanna come back to that in a little bit about sort of that mechanism and what it is about co-op that you thought might be effective in this subacute phase. Uh, but before we get there, I wanna lay out for folks a little bit about the study itself. Um, so to, to set the stage, you had kind of common inclusion exclusion criteria Uh, None of which is really a surprise. These are people in the subacute phase. So they had their stroke within the past three months. They were receiving OT services. They had mild or no aphasia. They had passed a MOCA screening and they met some other common inclusion criteria that you had. Importantly, though, you were looking uh, in part at upper extremity function and you didn't have any inclusion or exclusion criteria specific to upper extremity function, Why did you all make that choice? Why was it important for this study?
1: Great, great question. And it's actually something we went really back and forth on a lot as whether or not to include that. Uh, Part of it was just the pragmatics of the trial itself and the population that we were looking at, right? So upper extremity function and changes in upper extremity function was a secondary outcome for us. It was something we were looking at as maybe even a potential covariate in our analysis. But we really were going after and trying to establish the that there is an effect of co-op on, on occupational performance, right? And on their activities that they were doing. And if we end up having this positive impact on extremity function and cognitive function, that'd be great. If we put that in there as a criteria, though, it'd severely limit the sample. And it may make it, it may have made it not possible for us to recruit enough people to look at our primary outcome. And so we went back and forth and said, well, what can we really look at this as an outcome if we don't have any criteria around it? Uh, and I, I back and forth with reviewers as well who looked at the grant and said, yeah, you really should. we were like, well, no, it doesn't really matter. It's a secondary outcome. Uh, and ultimately we decided not to for this trial. Now in the follow-up trial, we're doing a larger scale trial. We do uh, because now we're trying to say, look, we believe that there may be an effect from the data we had from this early phase trial. And so in order to prove that, we did have to put some criteria around it.
0: So if we peek ahead at, your results, I don't want to get too far into that just yet, but did you find that the heterogeneity of the sample then, the the very different presentations people had of upper extremity function when they came into the to the study, did impact either the either their outcomes, that secondary outcome measure that you were looking at, or even the did it did it interact with the study design at all to a point where you got halfway through the trial and thought, oh boy, maybe we should have limited this or, Uh, did it impact your thinking as you went through the trial? And I'm asking this because I think the main target population for the people listening to this are folks who are interested in research and evidence-based practice and how the research process plays out and informs what they see when it gets published.
1: Yeah, I get another great question with this. So there was some heterogeneity in the sample, but we did use a randomized design and that's technically the beauty of a randomized design, right? And so at the end, what we ended up with is while there was a lot of variance within the groups, there was no real difference between the groups in terms of differences in upper extremity function. We had people who had limited upper extremity function. We had other people who had very much intact upper extremity function. Uh, In general, we were able to show that there was an effect, a positive effect that we saw in co-op that we didn't see in usual care. Um, I don't know if we had thoughts of it as we were going through. We very much, co-op in general is designed as a very pragmatic approach right? We set this up for it to be 45-minute sessions. We test it, you know, with, with 10 to 12 sessions. We designed it around outpatient OT services, really, to say, hey, look, if we're able to have an effect, we really want to see if it'll be having an effect in, you know, the traditional areas of practice and uh, settings where therapists might actually use it. And the same thing in this case, right? I mean, if the idea with co-op is that we're taking wherever you're at, helping you establish goals and come up with strategies for how to engage in those goals based on your current strengths and maybe potential limitations. Uh, So whether or not they had severe impairment in upper extremity or no impairment in the upper extremity didn't necessarily matter for that outcome, right? Sure, it matters to the patient. I'm sure it matters. That's obviously something we would focus on in rehab. Now with the other inclusion exclusion criteria we had though, just by the nature of them being in outpatient services and passing these other screens and not having any of these other severe neurological impairments, we did not really get a lot of people who had very involved upper extremity uh, limitations. Most of them had some, but none of them were you know, like a completely classic limb, anything along those lines. Does that answer your question?
0: It does. And so it actually kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about too. Um, you, you mentioned, of course, this being a randomized trial. People were randomized to either usual care or receiving Co-op. Um, for those listening who maybe aren't familiar with Co-op, who haven't known you for as long or heard you talk about this as many times, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about the Co-op approach, this pragmatic approach? How do you wind up defining, uh, setting up goals, and how does the treatment look any different from usual care?
1: Yeah, it's it's a metacognitive strategy training uh, in a generic sense, and it's really based on cognitive behavioral uh, theory, right? So helping the person or walking the person through a thought process, an explicit thought process, having them talk through the process, and learn a general goal that they can apply to any context when they're perhaps struggling with something they want to work on, and so something that you know someone who's neurologically intact would do is they kind of do this subconsciously. We kind of establish our goal and our plan and we modify as we go through it. Someone who's experienced a neurological injury, like a stroke, they're not able really to work through that. They'll get stuck, you know, or they'll need some help, or they'll need to do it a different way than what they did prior to that injury or illness. And so we make this an explicit process that we've trained them in how to do that, use that strategy and that process repeatedly in any context that they're in. And by using a general strategy like that, yeah, general knowledge we know transfers better, which is part of why uh, one of the beauty of, of this approach is that ideally, and we were able to show this in the study as well, it what we work on and the skills they learn in terms of how to use and apply a strategy, they're able to apply to other goals that we don't address in treatment, which rolling a CM for 10 sessions, but they're gonna live with a stroke for the rest of their life. So ideally, you know, the goal of any rehab is we'd like to see it transfer and generalize to other activities.
0: Yeah. I like to, I like to hear you say that part of it, that the goal in any rehab is that transfer, but you talk about the explicit process there that is so similar to what I think a lot of us as OTs don't realize maybe we're doing uh, or trying to do. Making that process explicit, training that metacognitive strategy uh, is pretty cool and seems to be the, the secret sauce, if you will, or the big difference there. Um, okay, so you, you worked with people through, uh, and the team worked with people through their course of care, having either co-op or usual care. Uh, you mentioned you've, you've gone on and you're are conducting a larger trial now. I'm curious, you, you checked with these people at the end of the intervention and again at a three month follow up. What did you find?
1: Uh, so in this particular study, this was looking at the secondary outcomes, right? So remember, the primary outcome for this was occupational performance and improved activity participation, improved independence. Uh, the secondary outcomes were saying, hey, look, if we help people engage in activity, does it have a trickle-down effect in terms of impairment reduction, right? So it's kind of the opposite of what we typically would do in rehab, where a lot of rehab tends to focus on impairment reduction with the idea that's going to trickle up uh, and improve activity performance. So... This study was looking at those secondary outcomes and we were able to show that co-op actually had more of a positive effect. Both groups got better, right? It's a subacute phase of stroke, we would expect that. But co-op had more of an effect on improving cognitive function and upper extremity function on the limited outcome measures we used in this study. And again, it was a smaller scale study. These are secondary outcomes. So we did not do a rigorous cognitive evaluation or even a rigorous upper extremity evaluation, but on the measures we used, there was a difference between groups. More so where's the
0: work? Sorry, so where's the work gone from there? What are you all doing now?
1: Well, I'm in, I'm in year two of an R01 study that's looking to uh, establish the efficacy of this approach in subacute stroke and to, to prove the effect that we showed in this early phase study. Uh, year one was year of COVID. Uh, we're still hanging in there pretty good, though, in terms of recruitment. It's not quite on track to where we were, but we have been, we have been recruiting for that study now for a little over a year.
0: So you're still in this kind of early stage efficacy trial. Um, again, for those thinking about evidence-based practice, i um, curious what you think the implications are as we understand them right now for OT practitioners out in the field. What should they be thinking about uh, in terms of cognitive, metacognitive strategy training?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, we, in terms of just the level of evidence we have for anything we do in OT, there's a pretty decent amount of evidence to support metacognitive strategy training interventions like this and even co-op specifically compared to most of what we do. Um, Once we finish this study, it'll be one of the only, I believe, uh, at least phase two clinical trials to support, well, hopefully support, we'll see what the data says at the end, to support using this intervention approach in practice. So right now, if you're looking at best level of evidence, I mean, the best level of evidence that we have uh, does support using a co-op approach for people who kind of fit in that criteria. I mean, this is a talk-based intervention, which is why we had to exclude people with a phase that we didn't have the ability to adapt it or account for that. Uh, and they have to have some of awareness, right? They have to be able to understand or recognize when they're making an error. Otherwise, they don't know how to, when to apply a strategy. So uh, when we discuss this, some of the paper, but then also the text and stuff that are out there talk about who co-op is most appropriate for
0: and so with that in mind, I would encourage listeners who are interested in learning more about this approach uh, or, or potentially learning more about co-op and following along with the work that Tim and his colleagues are doing uh, to look for the paper that uh, was the basis of the discussion today. And that is, again, combined cognitive strategy and task-specific training affects cognition and upper extremity function and subacute stroke and exploratory randomized controlled trial and again that is in volume 70 of ajot from january of 2016 so with that i think we'll wrap up i will remind everyone tim wolf uh, is director uh, i'm sorry is associate editor of otjr and director of the performance participation and neurorehabilitation lab and chair of the ot department at the university of missouri dr tim wolf thank you for joining us today
1: My pleasure. Take care, everybody.
0: And for listeners, we will put a link uh, on the Everyday Evidence podcast page at aota.org to help you find that paper. Uh, You can find that page along with more episodes, transcripts, and links to all of our source materials by searching for Everyday Evidence at aota.org or on Stitcher. On behalf of the Evidence-Based Practice Project at AOTA, thank you for listening.